G'day everybody, my name's Glenn Hill. And I'm Jacob Meyer. Welcome to the Tactical Tennis Podcast, and in today's episode, we're going to answer the question of whether or not getting physically stronger would help you win more matches. Yeah, and specifically when getting stronger helps you win more matches. This one's a really personal one for me because I've been arguing a about this issue and the sort of side questions that come up from it with one of my players for the last like six months or a year and he just well we just keep going back and forth right like I think hey if you get stronger you're going to win more matches and he doesn't seem to think that that is actually true well what are some of the reasons he wouldn't think that was true Oh, I mean, just right to the heart of the issue. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I can actually understand where he's coming from. I, I suppose that's part of the point of the conversation is, to me, it seems obvious, but I've been trying to understand how he could genuinely just feel like, you know, that's not my issue. And uh, there's a, a couple of reasons, I guess. First, you know, he doesn't lose matches because he gets tired or, you know, because it's obviously a physical thing. And so I think just overall his fitness is so good and he's professional about it um, that he would just think this isn't really a problem. Right. Whereas you see it as an opportunity. You feel like if he got physically stronger, then his performance level would increase as opposed to getting stronger would help prevent a decrease in performance. You're seeing an opportunity for him to just become a stronger player. Not, I mean, I, I meant stronger, stronger in, in more of the meta sense rather than the, the physical one. I'm glad we separated the meta and the physical one. So you always um, got to separate the meta for the physical, Jacob. Yeah, and don't confuse it with the metaphysical. <laughs> but I think we just lost like a lot of listeners right there. Um, <laughs> anyway... Yeah, so it, it's it's not, I suppose, an obvious thing, especially for a decent player to think about. Um, generally speaking, I try and get everyone that I work with to get stronger physically in the gym. That's like a big part of what I do. Um, but it's not the top priority for everyone, right? For some people, that's just not the number one priority, Um like if, for instance, I think if you're working with Rafa, you know, going to the gym and getting physically stronger shouldn't be your number one priority. That's not going to win him the most matches. Right. He certainly, he's not suffering from a strength deficiency. I think, I think maybe there, the easiest way to say this would be that I can't ever think of a professional tennis player on the men's or women's side that was too strong physically to play good tennis. But there certainly have been a lot of players who leave performance on the table by not being strong enough. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's exactly right. The, the issue is that we're leaving performance on the table. So I had a conversation with another one of the guys today. And really specifically, we said, look, like this isn't about you having a problem. Or this isn't even about just beating the guy that you lost to last time. This is about getting the absolute most out of yourself that you can. And just to clarify for the people who are listening, 
this isn't going to be a podcast where we talk about professional players for 30 minutes or an hour. This just helps give you some framework to understand that even professional players have strength deficiencies a lot of the time that are impacting their performance. And so one of the things that we're trying to do today is to help you answer that question for yourself is would getting stronger help you win more matches? And so, so maybe if you think this is a good time to do this, Jacob, we could talk about some of the questions that people could be asking themselves in order to answer that bigger question. Because I think it's, that's not necessarily an easy thing for the average listener to, to know the answer to. Um, yeah, well, if you're open-minded enough to just sit back and go, oh, wait, and, and if you just find that you just asked yourself, am I leaving a lot of performance on the table by not being stronger? Like, if, if you just did that, then I think um, there's a few places that you can start from. So this this has really become an issue for me over the last year because these guys made it really personal for me. I mean, you know that I'm consulting for a few of the guys on the ATP right now. And so it, it, it just really hit home like, wow, I mean, I just thought this was something I struggled with when I was 25. I didn't think that this was something that tour veterans would still be struggling with when they're playing at you know a world-class level so the most obvious place to start for me is just to ask yourself you know am i losing matches because i'm getting tired sure because a lot of times people are losing matches because they're getting tired they get into a third set or men's professional ranks at the grand slams a fifth set and they start losing foot speed. They start struggling to catch breath between points. They start making poor tactical decisions. Their quality of shot goes down. And so these are all ways that getting tired would, would make you lose matches. But I think most people hearing that question would say, well, if I'm just getting tired, that means I need to do more cardio. <laughs> right. Um, and the, you know, the first issue is that getting tired might not necessarily mean that your cardio is so bad, but it could just as likely be a strength issue. Right. Uh, maybe to draw a comparison, we might look at like a small Honda car and those things can get great gas mileage and they drive forever. But if you make one tow a trailer where it's straining at its limits the whole time, then you're that thing's going to fall apart pretty quickly. Right. And the gas mileage right. goes down horribly and all the things that horribly. you thought were beneficial about it aren't good because it's, it's not really matched up to the task that's set before it. Um, so, you know, you have to look more deeply and more closely at the style of tennis that you play, the way that you're playing in particular in the matches that you're losing, if you think you're losing because you're getting tired, you also have to ask yourself, well, how am I playing in those matches, right? I know mm -hmm. for me, I used to lose some matches that I got tired in, but I went into a completely different style of play where I was just grinding and making balls and I was just running basically and retrieving. And so it's like if, if, if I was just going to be retrieving for two or three hours, eventually I was going to get tired. Sure. That was a totally different style of play than what I was doing on the days realistically when I was winning. 
um, and I wasn't getting tired in those days. So it's maybe a good way to ask that question would be: Do you feel like you're becoming inappropriately tired during matches for the style of tennis that you're playing? Yeah, and that I mean we've talked about this. This is sort of a recurring theme, I'm sure, as we have these discussions. Um, but you you know you need to get some data and take a real honest look at what you're actually doing on the court and not just assume that you're playing all your matches the same way all the time under all circumstances because right. most of us don't do that. Sure. And maybe one of the easiest ways to answer this question would frankly be to test your own cardio because in a lot of ways, testing your cardio is one of the easiest tests that you can do because testing strength can can be fraught with other difficulties, especially if you're not doing a lot of strength training. And so there's a few avenues that we have for testing cardio. And I mean, probably the, the most universal one, especially if you, you would like to be able to test your results and compare them to other people and, and be able to reference a database with a lot of information out there, would be to get a VO2 max test done. Yeah, and classically, like, you know, when you're in graduate school for exercise physiology and things like that that's what you learn you learn how to do those and you you spend time studying vo2 max testing and whatnot um if you're near a university there's a good chance that somebody there can do vo2 max testing hospitals actually have them but you know you may not want to pay to go do it um, university settings a lot of times you can get them either for very, very cheap, or you can get them for free if you're willing to be a guinea pig for an hour. Um, mm -hmm. But if you're not able to access a good VO2 max test, do you have any other suggestions? There, there are other suggestions, but before we, we switch off that, just really quickly, typically speaking, if you do go and get a professionally done VO2 max test performed on you you're looking at a cost of somewhere between 100 and 250 dollars if you can't get a free one through a local university or a study of some sort um, and and when you do that you can again get an idea of where your results fall in the realm of athletic performance um, you know if you have a vo2 max of 85 well congratulations because that's what um, lance armstrong was getting when he was <laughs> Both riding, cycling professionally, and also on performance-enhancing drugs. I was like eighty-five. So, come on, <laughs> right? So, but but that gives you, you know, that's at the very very high end, and then there's a whole range in there, right? But but the point being, if if you go and get your VO2 max test done and find that you're in a good to upper range of of that, then you know that that cardio isn't the problem, and at that point you would start looking at strength. But if we look at other avenues. You can do a treadmill test yourself. There's something called the Bruce Protocol. So, Jake, do you want to talk about that briefly a little bit? Yes, sure. So, this is just to give an overview or an idea of it. So, oftentimes when you do a VO2 max, they actually use a Bruce Protocol. Um, the Bruce Protocol is just the order and the steps in which um, you ramp up a treadmill to go faster and faster and for the incline to increase which puts more stress on your system and allows you to push a higher volume of oxygen. Volume of oxygen is VO2. VO2 max, obviously, is just the maximum that you can push. So you can actually do a bruise protocol 
um, you can do it by yourself. You can do it in the gym. I mean, you just need to be sort of healthy enough and safe enough. And have a treadmill. Yeah. I mean, you need to have a treadmill. Would be the other part of the, um, yeah. So within that, they just, you slowly ramp up the speed and the angle in, in stages, essentially. And so you start out at a 1.7 miles an hour in the treadmill at a 10% grade. And, and you just keep going up and up and up until you're doing seven miles an hour at a 26% grade. And, and yeah, nobody, you're not going to, if you're making it that far, your cardio is fine. Don't worry. Like, right. <laughs> stop before you exactly. get there, please. Um, but the point is you can test yourself basically just with a treadmill. If you just Google like Bruce protocol self-test, then you can do it without all the fancy equipment. And, you know, you're not going to get an exact VO2 max number, but you're going to get a range that's going to be somewhere close to what your number would be. And if it's really, really bad, then, you know, guess what? Like my cardio is not that great and there's a good chance I've got a cardio problem. And if your number is pretty darn good, then you need to ask yourself, okay, well, if I'm getting tired, but my cardio seems to be pretty good and everything like my lungs and my heart and everything seems to work pretty well, then... Then you're that little Honda trying to drag the big trailer. (laughs) Yeah, like how am I getting so tired? What's happening, right? So... You're the little engine that can't. Look, the little engine that can't. Wow. So tell me more about that. What do you mean the little engine that can't? What does that mean for a tennis player? Well, that, that means that you, you might be quote unquote fit. You have good cardiovascular fitness, but you aren't actually strong enough to be able to output the power that you're trying to put out in your average point and sustain that. So your, your muscles are fatiguing out. Uh, they're dragging a ton of oxygen out of your bloodstream. Your heart's pumping like crazy trying to keep up and you fatigue out. And, and so the last test that you can do if you don't have access to a treadmill or a VO2 max test is if you just Google three-minute step test, there's a pretty easy uh, step test that all you need is a stopwatch or a metronome or a metronome app on your mobile phone and uh, three minutes of stepping up and down on, on a 12-inch step and, and measuring your heart rate. And there's some pretty easy-to-find charts out there that'll give you an idea of whether or not you have a, a big fitness problem or not. Um, and so, do you want me to keep talking about the little engine that can't? I just I just really wanted to get the step test in there because I... You know, I know, because the, step, at, at the, the step test is actually great. And I like that one a lot because I think there's a lot of carryover with it. Um, and it's kind of funny. It's like really simple. People are a lot less likely to hurt themselves. You don't necessarily max out your effort the same way you will doing a Bruce protocol. Um, so in some ways it's a lot safer. Um, but you know, stepping is pretty similar to running around and changing direction on a tennis court if you do it enough. Right. So yeah, I do want you to talk more about the little engine that can't. Now that we've talked about the step test. So we've got, we've got, at, at least a couple of options. Get a real VO2 max test. They're kind of cool. You'll learn a lot about yourself. I actually highly recommend it. I think it's worth the money. Um, if you really, really like want to do that, just talk to your doctor. He can probably tell you where to go. Um, if you can't do that and you want to self-test, then you can easily Google Bruce Code Protocol and do a little research on your own and figure out how to do that at your local treadmill, wherever that is. And if you can't do that at all, then find a 12-inch step, check out your three-minute step test results, and you can at least get a good estimation of whether or not your cardio is horrible. Absolutely. 
So, so the little engine that can, can, and the little engine that can. I'm going to bring this back to this car analogy because, in in some ways, it's probably the simplest, the simplest one. If I take two vehicles, and one of them is that little Honda Civic that I was talking about earlier. I don't think I actually specifically said Civic, but let's let's run with it. And my other one is, you know, let's say a Ford F one fifty truck for those of you in the US. But just imagine like a big work truck that's a flat, you know, like with a, a bed in the back and and it's all set up for towing. And so, look, if you take those two vehicles out in the road and just ask them to drive, then the, the Honda Civic is going to get better gas mileage, right? Because it's it's operating in the thing that it's designed to do, which is not putting out a lot of power and it's very light and it's just going to run. But if we take a very heavy trailer and, and hook it up to both of them, what's going to happen is the performance of the Honda Civic is going to suffer greatly. Its gas mileage is going to go down. It's going to lose a ton of acceleration. It's going to struggle to reach its top speed at all. I mean, its top speed would go down significantly too. But if I hook that exact same trailer up to the truck, it's not going to impact its performance as much. Its acceleration is still going to maintain somewhat. Uh, it's going to be able to reach somewhere closer to its top speed. It's going to take less of a performance hit because it has more functional, for want of a better way to compare it, strength uh, in, in, this, in this realm. We would talk more about torque, but it has more functional strength <laughs> than the smaller car does. And so if you think about the human body the same way, except you know, with a human body, if you're out there playing a tennis match, you have a finite amount of energy that you can expend. You don't get to stop at a gas station and put more fuel in, and then all of a sudden you're back at peak performance, like you're starting fresh. You're, you walk out in the court, and yes, you can try to fuel in the middle of your match, but you're always going to burn energy faster than you can replenish it when you're playing. And so... If, if you are out there and you are the little Honda Civic and you're trying, you have a great, great little motor that is very efficient and you are out there and you're putting a lot of power out, you're going to burn through your energy stores very quickly and then you're going to hit struggle town. Um, whereas if you're the, the bigger truck, you know, if you have a bigger engine in there or something with a little more, more uh, power to it, you're operating much better lower below your threshold like you're not pushing the raggedy edge all the time and you'd be able to last longer does that maybe make things clear <laughs> well I, th- I think it helps right i think this idea of operating below your threshold is a really big deal and that's something that i i, I just don't hear coaches talk about a lot and i i mean you know i mean i try and talk to the other coaches as much as possible um, but it's something that really stands out. It's a, it's the kind of thing that resonates with me because I felt like there were a few years in there when I was training really hard and my fitness was pretty high and probably I felt just like some of my guys, like, well, I don't really need to get a lot stronger. I need to improve my backhand. I need to improve my serve. I need to improve my, you know, forward movement or whatever but it didn't seem like it was a Mm -hmm. fitness problem for me not because fitness wasn't important but because i felt like i was addressing that and i was taking care of that right but when Mm -hmm. you talk about operating below your threshold looking back it's clear to me that i was really only winning points when i was really pushing the very limit of what i was capable of doing 
and it's pretty hard to red redline it and you know rev your engine all the time and have to do that in order to win and win a lot and win consistently right yeah we're, we're hitting the car analogies hard today um <laughs> maybe another way to talk about the threshold thing that might might resonate with people for, especially for anybody who has done any strength training previously so if you imagine that you go in and to the gym and you do a one rep max deadlift and you know what that number is let's say it's 400 pounds well how many of those can you do jacob in a row um what you mean me no, I'm saying like, and let's say that your one rep max deadlift is 400 pounds. Oh. <laughs> How many in a row can you do? Man, I totally fell for that one. You can do one, Glenn. You can, okay, exactly. You can do one. <laughs> so, so what happens then if I drop the weight to 300 pounds? How many can you do now? Um, I forgot my chart, but you can do more than one. That's for sure. A lot more than a lot more than one, right? And so that's maybe another way to think about this. So, if 300 pounds is all I can do one time and I go in and try and do 300 pounds, well, then I'm only going to get one of them done. But if if my friend can do 400 pounds as his one rec max, he's going to do a lot more on me at 300 pounds. And the same thing on the tennis court. Like if I'm going to hit a backhand and I am every swing, I'm just pushing my maximum. I'm, I'm close to the power output in my swing is close to all I can handle. Then I'm going to get tired of hitting back at backhands very, very quickly. Whereas if I have strengthened myself so that I can hit a very powerful backhand and still be comfortably below my threshold, well, I get to hit a lot more balls before I start to get tired. Yeah, that's right. So most of us judge ourselves based on, like most of us, we have we, we, we make, I'm not sure what the right term is here, but our perceived, our perceived ability of our own playing level is based on the best things that we can do it's not based on oh i watched 10 matches of myself and took data on it and then drew what the averages were and that's how i i make my perceived ability right so is it a bad idea for me to give a golf example here after we just went into into the car thing listen we've done cars we've done deadlifting i i, I think that golf is golf is fine right so there's why not there's why not there's really good data on this that the pga has gotten where psychologically they figured out that golfers as a rule draw their own self-perception virtually based on the best round that they are capable of playing right so you have a handicap in golf and when people self-rate and they make their own handicap, they almost exclusively make it the best that they can possibly play instead of the thing that they do on average. Sure. Right? And so that's a really easy concept, I think, for us to look at and grasp. It's harder to turn inwards and look at ourselves and realize that's us. <laughs> like, that's you. That's me. That's my, my one guy on the tour and my other guy and the other guy and the other guy and everybody else on the tour, right? Right. Like, it's not something that we're excluded from. You're not the one in a hundred, probably. And imagine it's much easier, I think. In golf, at least, you do get a handicap. You get to play lots of rounds and see what your range of scores is. And it should be not, hopefully 
too wide of a range from one round to the next, but you actually get information on that. Whereas when you look at tennis players, I mean, every single time you play, the conditions are different and you're also playing different opponents all the time. So you don't really have even as objective a measure as golf does of, of what your performance is actually like. And, and so in that case, I think it's even harder to get an accurate perception of where your ability's at. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we don't have anything that's really like a handicap. We do have the UTR system that's starting to come into more use. But that just reminds me now of uh, these junior players that I talk to and their coaches and their parents as they're playing ITFs and trying to transition onto the tour. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've heard like, oh, my, my kid's like a 14.3, which would make him like a, like a tour player, like a low-level tour player. And I'm like, really? Like, your kid's 17. He's a 14.3? Like, that's unbelievable. And he's like, yeah, like he beat this one guy that was like a 14.2. And, uh, and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He beat one guy that's a 14.2. And then you go and you look at him, and it wasn't maybe it was a fluke win. Maybe the guy had a cold or a flu, or he just flew across the world or something, right? But right. he's got one win at that level, and all his other wins are like a point and a half below. Like that doesn't make you a fourteen point three. That's not what a fourteen point three is, right? That's someone who does that day in and day out over the course of a hundred matches. Not oh, this is his best five wins. Right. right, you have to be consistently beating 14.2s <laughs> in order to be a 4.3. Exactly, um, and that's tough. Yeah. So so we've talked there about the fatigue aspect, but you know, it is, there's other ways in which a lack of strength might be costing you wins. And there's other things that can be going wrong on the court. So I think there's really two ways that we can look at this. Is one where a lack of strength is openly detrimental to your game, where it means that you're getting fatigued, or a lack of strength actually means that you're making errors that you shouldn't normally be making. And then on the other side of the spectrum, there's getting stronger would mean that your your specific stroke performance could improve so that your backhand could add five or 10 miles an hour to it, that your serve could get heavier, that just the quality of your shot would go up from you being stronger. And that would also result in more wins. And so maybe we could take a few minutes and talk about some ways in which a lack of strength might also be negatively impacting your game in terms of errors that you're making and some ways that we can identify when that might be happening. Yeah, so there's a, a few favorite examples, I think, to get started here, right? Mm-hmm. We can take the same psychology that we were talking about with the golfers and self-perception and just look at serving. Ask yourself what your average first serve speed is. Let's say that you can serve 120 miles an hour on your maximum first serve, right? But your average first serve speed might only be like 105 or 107. Well, that's a big drop. That immediately points to the idea that, hey, you know, if I was stronger, I could maintain something closer to 120 a lot longer. And it mm. seems fairly obvious that if you can serve 120 all day long, almost every point, it's probably going to be more effective than if you're serving 15 miles an hour slower, right? I was just going to say that that's the example that I like to use with the pro guys because the you know the men's program is so dominated by the serve and they all kind of shake their head and go oh yeah yeah because like 
almost all of them can serve 130 one time. Right. Almost none of them serve 120 the whole day. Right. So, But that would be an example of increasing strength to improve the performance of a stroke. Jacob, what would be another example, perhaps, of a sign that a lack of strength is causing us to fatigue in matches? So I think I could point to myself here on this one. I mean, I had that issue with my backhand where I would be good to hit, let's say, two or three, maybe four backhands. But then after that, all of a sudden it would be drop shot or it would be backhand down the line going for a winner when it's not even an opening or it would be something that a coach could look at from the outside and very clearly identify, well, this player is just trying to end the point right now. Mm-hmm. Right. So it seems prudent to ask yourself, you know, do I have a weakness in my game where I try and end the point? let's say, inappropriately. I think that's exactly right, Jacob. We often see where problems that are maybe technical or physical in nature can be manifested or exposed through the poor decision-making that people make in order to try to compensate for or avoid uh, those weaknesses that they feel they have. Sometimes it's happening in an absence of understanding where people are making decisions like that to try to end a point prematurely because they aren't strong enough to maintain, but they aren't even aware that they're doing it. A lack of strength can also lead us to making errors when the game becomes more dynamic too, wouldn't you say? A lot of the times we see that when someone's on the run and trying to get out of a little bit of an awkward position, they're just not strong enough to do anything from that position. I think that's exactly right. As the game becomes more dynamic and we get put in more and more awkward positions where we're maybe not able to utilize all of our muscles appropriately and the load or the burden for a stroke gets placed disproportionately on a smaller group of muscles like maybe just the arm where normally you might use more of the core as well as the legs or the hips. Um, That's also when a, a lack of strength or an insufficiency of strength can lead to mistakes. And there's one more area that I'm also thinking about. One of the great benefits of of strength, one of the great benefits that strength provides us in terms of a stroke is the stability that it allows us to have. Because if I think about, take my one-handed backhand, for example, or a two-handed backhand, you have a lot of moving pieces. And if you're swinging harder at a stroke, any ground stroke, and truth be told even if you're not swinging that hard at it you've got a, a very powerful rotational motion taking place with a lot of forces acting on your body and if you don't have enough leg strength to stabilize yourself while everything's coming around and swinging through then you're going to be off balance you're going to lose stability and the result of that is that you're not going to hit the shot that you were planning to hit. You're not going to hit the shot. The ball isn't going to make contact on the string bed in the place that you're expecting it to make contact because you're not going to be balanced. Your body's not going to be quite where you expect it to be. And that's if you're, if you're having a lot of shanks and you look at your video of your stroke and you think, well, that looks fairly clean to me, and, but, but you miss hit a lot of balls, it might be 
that you are not able to maintain stability during your stroke because you don't have enough strength. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think you can even go back to the first thing that you said about, you know, one hand backhand or two handed backhand. Most of us, when we're young, start with a two handed backhand specifically because we don't have the stability to hit a one handed backhand. I mean, in a lot of ways, the mechanics of a one handed backhand swing are more simple and probably better understood than two handed backhands are. Uh, but I mean, most, you know, 10 year old players don't have the necessary strength to be stable and execute that shot. Right. And then also on the strength line, when you think about what, where a lot of the major pulling muscles are in the one-handed backhand, uh, a lot of young kids don't have the strength to really swing that racket with one arm yeah. and accelerate it enough to really hit the ball properly. So that would be another example of strength. This is probably something that we don't think about a lot, but I'm glad that you clarified because my mind was in a totally different place. And the the place that I see this most with the average player is going to be in executing volleys, especially like backhand volleys, right? So many times um, we're just not used to extending our arm and having to use our back muscles in that way in everyday life. And especially as the years go on and on and on, it's like the tennis court is the only time when we're really asked to do those movements. And a lot of the time, like, we see people that have pretty decent technique, I would say, but it's really undermined by just a lack of stability. And so spending more time working on the technique at some point stops stops to produce results when the problem is a stability issue and a strength issue. I think that another aspect or another area we can identify a lack of strength that can be um, a little more specific because I, you and I both and everybody listening to this podcast knows somebody who's just overall you look at them and physically they're a very strong individual but whether or not you realize it they have very specific areas where they're actually not very strong at all you know whether it's maybe a rear deltoid muscle or You've all seen somebody who's got a very big upper body. You know, there's the whole don't skip leg day meme. I was going to say. Um, and little chicken legs. And that would be an ex- Right, yeah. So, I mean, but, but, but sometimes that's not so obvious. I mean, that would be an, ex- an obvious example to me if you see somebody who's, who's in, in the gym benching every day, but then they, they haven't done a squat in 10 years. Right. And you can see the muscle mass difference and the, the different development in musculature between their upper body and their lower body. But just like that it's possible for somebody to go into the gym and to squat heavy all the time and to do you know big bench but then they don't do any work on the stabilizing muscles in their shoulders for example or there's other smaller less noticeable muscles that don't get any attention and so what can happen is you can have an area where somebody might be weak and it's not immediately apparent and so let's say that you you have pretty good technique on both your forehand and your backhand where the stroke looks nice it's stable it's smooth but one of them is much more powerful than the other at that point if i'm having the same mentality hitting the shot both shots or i'm trying to generate power in a similar manner with both shots i might start to question whether or not i have a, a strength issue on the muscles that are providing power to the shot that 
is underpowered compared to its sister stroke. That's right. That was a very, very convoluted. There was it wasn't. I, I don't think said, it was actually that convoluted. I think that was pretty good. It's just that that's not something that we're used to hearing that much, right? But sure. it seems like you're saying, like, look, take a just take a step back, try and forget everything for a moment, and do a very simple evaluation of your game, right? Take forehands and backhands, or forehands and backhand volleys, or left side of your body and right side of your body. Is one stroke significantly underpowered compared to the other one? Right? Then the one of the first things that you should look at is, whoa, do I have a strength issue with that other side of my body? Maybe another way to, to think about this. I mean, so if we we were to look at some professional players, and I'm just going to pull two two names out, not at random here, uh, as an example of this. If we look at the one-handed backhands of Roger Federer and Stan Wawrinka, <laughs> I mean, look, we all know that we all know that Stan has a monster backhand. It's a beautiful shot, no doubt about it. But Federer's backhand isn't too shabby either. And there's a power difference between their two backhands. I mean, just a raw power difference. I'm not talking about like when Federer steps up and takes the ball early, which he has a phenomenal ability to do. I'm talking about like if they're both three feet behind the baseline, taking a ball at shoulder height and trying to rip rip something cross court hard, there's a noticeable power and spin difference between those two strokes that is greater than can be explained through technique. Because I do think that Stan has better technique on the back end that lends itself to a more powerful stroke, but not that much. Okay. Not that much better, not that much more power. And so... Let me just interrupt you here, because we're not saying that Federer's stroke, backhand stroke, isn't good. Like, we actually both really like Federer's backhand stroke. But it's really clear. I mean, everybody's attacking Federer's backhand, and almost nobody's attacking Stan's backhand. Stan's backhand, like, knocks you over. It is one of the best shots on the tour, and Fed's backhand is the perceived weakness in his game, right? So what are we really talking about here? Like, what are you really asking about when you point out these two guys on that side? I'm saying they both have, I'm saying they both have good backhand technique. Yeah, apples to apples. Stan hits a bigger, a noticeably bigger backhand. Yeah, much and, and I think it's, it's not purely because of strength. But strength plays a very big role in that. Well, I'm, I think I think that if if Roger had the strength that Stan has physically in his upper body, then you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the outputs and their backhands with the naked eye. That that seems like that's the key point, right? Like the the strength that's. I mean, Stan is just a much bigger guy with raw strength, right? And it seems like. Fed has superior superior technique in some aspects of his game where he can hit some some obviously world-class shots and get world-class results from that technique. Um, but he can't do it everywhere. It seems like a no-brainer if Roger's upper body was as strong as Stan that he would hit his backhand bigger. I, I would think so too. But that's that's to me perhaps an, an obvious example of where a strength deficiency is not necessarily causing problems, but certainly leaving a lot of performance on the table, right? And and certainly Roger's not alone in this. I mean, there's a lot of professional players that 
that do have that kind of issue. And, I, and I, my understanding, I think, is that Roger was always concerned that getting a bulkier in his upper body would affect his range of motion, his flexibility, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, Roger's on the record saying that he didn't lift with his upper body because he thought that it would mess up his timing. He thought that right. somehow, you know, and, and really it was like, okay, well, what does that mean and what exactly is that going to look like? But, I mean, he just thought that it was going to be bad for his tennis. Like, he seemed to have this impression that he's just a talent and that lifting with his upper body was going to undermine his talent. I think that he works very hard and he's proud of how hard he works. And I think there's a way sometimes in which I, I there's this weird dichotomy in that sometimes I think he really embraces this idea of him as this talented maestro. But then also sometimes I think he, he feels a little bit as though the work that he puts in is, is unappreciated or undervalued. Yeah. Um, and I, and I see that kind of warring a little bit in his interviews, but ultimately I think there's this idea that he felt like there there was an element to his game that was a separator, something that made him better than everybody else, which was the sense of timing and that lifting with his upper body would impact that or would take something away from the magic of his strokes. Yeah. And I just want to go on the record saying, like, I think that he's just wrong about this. And Yeah, absolutely and- agree. Absolutely agree. <laughs> you know, just in case some people think that I'm crazy, this is actually a question that over the last two years I have probably asked, I don't know, 30 or 40 tour players. Every single one of them has stopped dead in their tracks and agreed, yes, if Federer was like as strong as Stan or as strong as Rafa, it's just they just think like it's just scary how good he would have been he for sure would have been even better and you know i mean these are the guys that respect him the most that realize and understand how good he is and what he's done frankly more than you and i do more than anyone listening to this does like the guys that are out there literally getting embarrassed on the biggest stage and in the biggest matches of their lives, they know how good Roger is, I promise. Yes, and certainly if they're saying that he would be even better if he had been stronger, then that's that's a little... I mean, I guess it's, it's not really scary so much as it's just something I think worth noting and understanding that even the very, very best to ever play the game can make these kinds of mistakes... In, in the way that they prepare. And you have an opportunity to perhaps not make those same errors. Yeah. In a way, if you, you know, nobody else is Roger, but if you're losing a lot, it's a lot easier to say, oh, okay, I'm going to add a whole another element to my training. And it's, it's, it's easier to embrace that. It can be more difficult if you're winning a lot, if you're at the top of your league or you're at the top of your school or you've historically been a highly successful player. It can be a lot more tempting to just say, well, I don't want to mess with a winning formula, right? That's the whole thing of loss aversion. I mean, studies have shown very consistently that people are more afraid of losing something then they are excited about the prospect of gaining something. And so if you have something to lose, people tend to act in ways that protect that and prevent the loss of, of whatever it is that they don't they don't want to lose or that they have possession of. Um, it's a good thing that you brought that up because 
one thing that we should all be very clear on is there are more players that are younger than us that are coming up, right? And one of the great things about tennis is that we get to play against players across a wide range of age groups. So unless you plan on playing the rest of your life and only playing guys within five years of your age group, I guarantee you younger players that are coming up are coming up with better strength training and better programs. And even when they get older and get out of shape, they are still going to be stronger specifically in the ways that will benefit their tennis because of the training that they've done up until that point. So, I mean, if you're not looking at these things, then like you're going to lose. It's just a question of if it's now or if it's a little bit down the road. I, I think there's also that, that old adage that if you're not getting better, then you're getting worse because the average level is always going to keep improving. And that's just a simple reality. So if you are not finding ways to improve also, then your, your level compared to the average is, is going to eventually go down. Um, I feel like we've, we've covered a lot of material in a lot of ways. I know probably some of the people listening are asking themselves, well, that's, that's great, Glenn and Jacob. You've just told me that getting stronger <laughs> will make me better at tennis how the bloody hell do I do that? And I think that's something that we can maybe start to talk about in the next podcast. Yeah. Can we? Should we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially if I don't hit mute. Well, that, that would be helpful. Don't hit mute. <laughs> um, th- I know that, that that's probably raised a lot of questions, but a lot of the questions that we've raised are questions for you to ask yourself and hopefully get some answers to. And if you're listening to this podcast and you've stuck with us this long, then you're the type of person who's going to ask those questions and get some of those answers. And hopefully when we talk about some some ways to approach strength training uh, in a future episode, then you'll be able to make use of that to improve your game and win some more matches. And in the meanwhile, if you do have questions that you would like to ask us, we're happy to help. You can send me an email at glenn at tacticaltennis.com. And you can get me at jacob at tacticaltennis.com. And if you have you can also, specific oh, questions, go ahead. if you have specific questions, especially about some of these issues for your own game, then I think reach out to us on social media. You can get us at Tactical Tennis on Twitter and Instagram. And also, you can get me specifically in at Glenn S. Hill. And yeah, we, we're, we're always happy to engage. Look, we, we love the sport. Uh, we love engaging about the sport with, with people who are also passionate about the game and passionate about getting better. And helping people get better is, is the thing that drives us. I mean, we, we love it. And so, you know, do, do reach out if you have something that you want to talk about. And on, on that note, I guess we'll sign off and catch you next time. Thanks very much, guys.